Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Yantafi. Hello and welcome to the first episode of season four. I cannot believe that Gender Stories has been going on for so long. So thank you everybody for listening and for keep the audience keeps growing. So thank you for recommending this podcast to your friends and family. And today, as ever, I am super excited because I always have the best guests. That's just how it is. I'm sorry. Uh, but today I have Dr. Angela Cade Gutford with me, and they are the Chief Education Officer for Children's Minnesota. They're the Chief of Staff and, and the Pediatrician in the Children's Minneapolis Primary Care Clinic and the Medical Director of Children's Gender Health Program. Dr. Gutford has been with Children's for 15 years, and in that time, they've been an advocate for advancing equitable health care for all children. They've helped to create and cultivate the Children's Way values to ensure a positive experience for patients, families, and professional staff. And they've been an engaged member and leader on several com committees, strategic planning teams, and other initiatives across the organization. Dr. Gerpford has a passion for working with underserved and at-risk kids and families. They speak Spanish and care for a diverse community of patients in the primary care clinic that they're in. In addition, they also run the academic education and health professional education programs for children, and they're the chief of, the, of professional staff. They're a leader in the LGBTQ community, and they're driving equitable care for LGBTQ youth, particularly uh, trans, non-binary, and gender-expansive youth, and they're a sought-after speaker and trainer on this topic. So I'm really, really excited to be talking with them about puberty blockers today. They were a member of the LGBT Standards of Care Advisory Board. They, developed the, they helped develop the first healthcare standards for LGBT people in the state of Minnesota, and they're a recipient of one of the inaugural Business of Pride Awards from the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journals in 2018. And they were a winner of a special recognition award from the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2019 for advocacy and education about LGBTQ youth. In 2020, they gave their first TEDx talk titled The Revolutionary Truth About Kids and Gender Identity as part of TEDx Minneapolis. And don't worry, I'll put the link to that TEDx TEDx talk in the episode description, dear listeners, so that you can find it and listen to more of Kate's amazing work. So welcome on Gender Stories. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. I know that you're incredibly busy, so I'm so grateful that you made time for this today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm really happy to be here. So I'm really excited to be talking with you and I've known you in community for a little while. So I know just how amazing the work that you've been doing is. But unfortunately, one of the things that brought us together today is this decision in the UK that people may or may not have heard about uh, called the Bell versus Tavistock decision, which kind of encouraged some um, providers to kind of write a response, even though you are US-based and this happened in the UK. Um, and that decision really 
if I understand correctly as a non-legal person, means that it's going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for youth in the UK who are looking, um, who are seeking to get puberty blockers kind of based on gender identity issues to be able to access this treatment unless they're 18 years old. Is that your understanding as well of basically what the decision Um, is? Unfortunately, that's my understanding as well. Yes. Yeah. So, and this decision seems to be part of this much bigger kind of trans moral panic that's been going on in the UK uh, for several years now. But this movement seems sadly to be growing. And um, I know that uh, many of my friends and colleagues um, in the UK or kind of part of trans community have been really impacted by different waves of this kind of trans moral panic. And, and often, of course, when it comes to gender, there's always a moment when people are like, what about the children? You know, are children old enough to make those decisions? What, right. um, you know, should anybody make those terrible decisions about their body before they're 18? Um, and so today, that, that's what we're here to talk about. A, the fact that, you know, people make decisions about their bodies all the time before they're 18 years old. Right. <laughs> but specifically, right. what are puberty blockers? So let's start from why is this decision relevant beyond the UK? So you are yeah. based here on Dakota Anishinaabe land in what is currently known as the United States. Why does this matter to you as a pediatrician here? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it matters to me because I care about all kids, uh, no matter where they live. And I think, you know, all kids have the right to grow up to be happy and healthy and safe and strong. And so if there are kids who will never be patients of mine in the UK that can't get the necessary medical care that they need, I care about it. So that's probably first and foremost. But I think, you know, earlier you referenced this trans moral panic, and that's that's not unique to the UK. We see that here in the United States, and we see it specifically around this issue. So there have been several, you know, proposed pieces of legislation across this country that are trying to restrict access to medical care for trans people and specifically for trans children. So I have no um, pretense that what happens in the UK relative to this topic will stay in the UK. I think it's happening here in the United States and it will only continue to happen. And those of us who advocate for trans and gender expansive kids need to be strong voices to make sure that we protect um, the health and really the right to health care for these kids. Absolutely. I believe that there's a bill kind of not that different from what is happening in the UK, kind of in Montana right now, trying to stop treatment of trans and gender expansive or non-binary youth. And I agree, this is uh, far closer to home than uh, yes. than we would like to think sometimes. I think there are so many misconceptions about the treatment that youth can access. And so maybe we can start from there. Because <clears throat> sure. I think sometimes people are so confused about what is happening and to whom on a medical level, right? And of course, I also really want to name that not all trans or non-binary or gender expansive youth are necessarily um all going to seek medical care, but when they do seek medical care, kind of what, when is the first time that as a pediatrician, you would see like a trans youth or non-binary youth or gender expansive child kind of in your practice specifically for gender related treatment? Yeah, Um, that's a great question. And you're right. Every, every trans or gender diverse kid is different. And so not all kids are going to need um, medical intervention of any kind. 
but many um, kids do need a doctor. And, and for that reason, I actually have seen kids both in my primary care practice and in the gender health program as young as three, four, and five years old um, to have conversations. And really up until kids hit the age of puberty, there's no medical interventions that we offer for kids. And what we're doing in those situations is really helping parents and kids uh, understand concepts of gender. We're helping parents understand how to best support their kids, how to best protect their kids in school settings and other places where they may need some supportive resources around how they have these conversations with their teachers, with their grandparents, with other family members, with the neighbors down the street. So up until the age of puberty, we certainly see kids in the doctor's office. And what we're doing is providing um, supportive and affirming um, care, which is primarily conversations, answering questions, um, helping access resources. So the first point that we would do any type of medical intervention would be the onset of puberty, which um, for most kids is going to be between the ages of nine and 12, somewhere in there. Yeah. And I think that this idea of puberty sometimes is really nebulous for people. So how do you assess if a child is kind of hate puberty, which I know gets more in the medical stuff, but I think that's important yeah. for people to yeah. know what are the changes no. you're looking for? <laughs> it's that's it's I think when I talk to families in clinic, that's where I start is what is puberty? What are we talking about when we talk about puberty? And, you know, what I say to kids is puberty is kid bodies changing into grown up bodies. That's what puberty is, right? And so up until we start puberty, all kid bodies are essentially the same, except for our genitals. And if you have a pair of underwear on, you can't tell if a child is male or female or non-binary or however they may identify by looking at their body because all, bo all kid bodies are essentially the same. It's all a matter of clothes and haircuts. But then when you get to puberty, bodies start to change and the hormones that are start circulating around puberty start to develop what we call in the medical field, primary and secondary sexual characteristics, which I also say is kind of feminizing and masculinizing characteristics. And so that starts to happen. And, you know, I also say for those of you who are listening that are old enough to remember this movie, um, it's not like the movie Big with Tom Hanks, <laughs> where you, you know, go to bed a kid and then you wake up an adult. So puberty happens over years and there are stages of it. So the first stage of puberty typically starts between nine and 12 and progresses all the way until the late teenage years. And depending on if you were assigned female or assigned male at birth, there may be slightly different typical starting and endpoints for that. But I think the main takeaway point is it is a process. There are stages. It happens slowly and it happens over time. Um, so I, is that helpful to kind of think through like what we're talking about when we say puberty? I think it's really helpful because I think that people, when you know, think that children are getting medical treatment at five or six years old. And like you said, you know, the treatment they're getting is a lot of conversation. And so when we're talking about puberty, A, a child is at least nine years old. And that is absolutely as early as puberty can start. I've even seen kids around eight years old starting to develop kind of um, some, you know, starting to experience some pubertal changes. 
Yeah. You know, so treatment doesn't, medical intervention doesn't start that early. And then if there is medical intervention, what kind of medical intervention might happen during that window of pubertal changes? And what does that look like for uh, trans and non-binary or gender expansive children and youth? Yeah, so the first um, treatment window would be at what we call in the medical um, terminology, Tanner stage two, which is the first stages of when those kid bodies start to change into grown-up bodies. And so depending on, again, the assigned sex at birth of the child or the the hormones that are circulating endogenously or sort of um, natally in their bodies, if you are assigned female at birth, the first signs of that puberty are going to be what we call breast buds or those little sort of tender pads of tissue that develop beneath the nipples for kids where they often kind of feel them before you can even see them because they're kind of tender. and sometimes associated pubic hair. And then in kids who are assigned male at birth, it's often an enlargement of the testicles, which most kids may or may not notice. And then some um, associated pubic hair with a little bit of a voice change. That's kind of um, what starts to happen earliest on. And so when kids get to that stage, um, the second stage of puberty, that's where we have an opportunity to use a medication called a puberty blocker Um, or the medical term for those medications is a GnRH analog is what we call that. And that is a medication that can pause puberty. Um, We say block and sometimes we say stop, but I like to say pause because specifically it is a reversible medication. So we are literally pausing the pubertal hormones that are circulating and therefore we can unpause them at any time. So in the work that I do with kids and families, um, puberty blockers are a really nice option because kids actually don't have to have it all figured out at that stage. Um, What they have to have figured out is that the changes that are happening in their body don't feel right to them. They don't, they're causing distress, they're causing dysphoria, they're causing them to really um, feel uncomfortable. And it's specifically related to their gender identity. Mm-hmm. You know, puberty is not comfortable for anybody. So let's just get that on the table. No kids love puberty. I mean, a handful of kids are excited about puberty. <laughs> Most kids hate it, right? So it's it's not just not wanting to go through puberty. It's that your identity, your sense of self, your gender identity is specifically being contradicted by the changes that are happening in your body. Um, And so that's an opportunity that we have uh, to step in and pause that process. And that's an important distinction to make because as a mental health provider who also works with this population, often that's what I hear from parents. Well, nobody likes puberty. Puberty is uncomfortable for everybody. And then I have to kind of break it down. But for your kid, this seems to be uncomfortable in this very specific gender related way, which is different than just experiencing the distress of puberty, which is absolutely real. And most people experience that there is an added kind of factor that is connected to to their gender identity, that their body is kind of developing in a way that's not consistent or congruent with their version of themselves, with their identity, with uh, with who they are um, inside. Absolutely. And I like the pause. Um, I like to explain it as a pause because, you know, the other thing that's beneficial about puberty blockers is, you know, it gives us some time. So it's a reversible Mm -hmm. intervention that if you have a kid who may be on the younger side, say on the nine, 10, 11 year old side, and we, we 
are noticing that they're experiencing some distress around their gender identity or some dysphoria around their gender identity, it's an opportunity for us to pause the permanent changes of puberty that are happening, which we don't talk about that enough. Puberty is permanent. Um, So we're very hesitant to make permanent changes in in children or adults when it comes to initiating gender affirming hormones, but we sometimes forget that puberty is permanent. So we are committing a child to permanent bodily changes when we allow them to start to go through puberty. So we can pause that for a period of time to allow the child to work with practitioners like you and others who can help them sort through some of these feelings to really delineate is this body discomfort? Is this gender discomfort? Is this, what, what is this that's going on? Um, while we pause those permanent changes. And at any moment, we can unpause them and allow kids to go through puberty if we choose. Exactly. Because basically, then if you stop uh, puberty blockers without any other hormonal intervention, the child would reverse to going through puberty in their basically gender assigned at birth, correct? Correct. They would go through their, what we call their natal puberty or their the puberty associated with their their uh, gender assigned at birth from there, um, yeah. just as they otherwise would. So no long term changes or consequences. They they would progress. And you know these medications that that we're talking about, these puberty blockers, um, these have been around for over thirty years. Um, right, and they were not developed yeah. for trans kids. Right, that's my absolutely not. Right, Where, right. Who they so, developed for originally. Do you know? Like, so, well, you referenced this earlier on. You know, some kids do go through puberty quite young, and probably the youngest age we will let someone go through puberty, particularly if they're assigned female at birth, is about eight. Um, eight would be pretty young for someone assigned male at birth. But there are some kids who, under the, that age, do start to go through puberty, and that's just way too young. One of the primary processes that happens during puberty is a, is a fusing of the growth plates, um, not only all of the secondary sexual characteristics, but really uh, a mineralization and fusing of growth plates. And, and it just would stunt their um, development. So we can't let kids go through puberty that young. So these medications were developed to mimic the naturally occurring puberty hormone, this GNRH, which then blocks the process downstream from that to keep those kids going through early puberty that we call precocious puberty. Um, until they were of the age to keep up with their peers and start that puberty. So we may start these medications on a kid who's six or seven, starting puberty too early, and keep their puberty on pause until they hit that 12 or 13 age, and then take it off and have them go through puberty. So for over 30 years, we've had these medications, we've used them in kids who have puberty too early. And it's really in the last 20 years, and probably more specifically in the last 10 years or so, that we have used them for transgender and gender diverse kids to pause their permanent changes of the puberty that's incongruent with their identity. And as far as I know, there was no big controversy, no legal challenges when this treatment was used for cisgender children who are going through precocious precocious puberty, which can be quite stressful. I mean, I remember I'm almost 50 and I remember growing up um, kind of peers, you know, in school, kind of hitting puberty really early and how stressful um, that was for them. And, you know, I don't believe at the time there was any treatment or this treatment would have been really, really new, uh, you know, and I was brought up in Italy and that was something that I wasn't even aware of until like 25 years ago or something. Um, so there were no controversies. So the controversy seems to be just applying this treatment that existed and was developed for cisgender kids 
to trans and gender expansive kids? What, why do you think that that's when it becomes controversial for people? Um, because medically, yeah. there doesn't seem to be any reason for it, right? It seems to be pure. No, I mean, it's a, very, it's a very safe medication. We've used it for a long time in kids with early puberty. There was, you know, to my knowledge, no um, significant controversy around using these medications in cisgender kids who are experiencing precocious puberty. And really, you know, there wasn't, um, at least in the broader public, much controversy around these medications up until recently. So we've been, you know, the initiation of, of puberty blockers in trans and gender diverse kids started as early as I could find about 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. That's when our sort of studies on this started showing up. Um, but, you know, more, I would say, uh, more commonly, maybe in the last decade. And when, you know, scientists and physicians and other people who were prescribing these medications, um, endocrinologists, so the um, Pediatric uh, Endocrinology Society, um, experts in gender health, the, you know, World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the WPATH, they developed uh, guidelines around the use of these medications um, for a very long time. Uh, and no one cared. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there were people who cared, but you certainly didn't have bills about it um, in the Senate. You certainly didn't have legal cases around it. And you certainly didn't hear about it in the mainstream as you do now. Um, what's happening now is that we have the most visibility for trans and gender diverse folks than we have ever had. And anytime you have visibility for a population of people, whether it's trans and gender diverse people or people of a particular race or religion or whatever it is that the majority doesn't understand, it induces a fear-based panic. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing. There is fear and misunderstanding. This is becoming more widely known and people are panicking um, based in fear. It's not based in any of the good science that we've had um, over the last several decades. It's really a lot of fear. And so that's what I see happening now is, you know, there's a backlash, I think, happening to the trans visibility. Um, we see that in increased violence against um, transgender bodies that is happening um, in this country and I think all over the world as well. So it's kind of the price I think we're paying for increased visibility for transgender people and transgender and gender diverse kids in particular. Absolutely. You know, if it really feels like children's bodies are have become this kind of battleground, you know, Absolutely. around gender, which is kind of heartbreaking because actually treatments like puberty blockers, like you said, this pausing creates so much space for really kind of healthy support for the child yeah. and for their family. Um, it creates space, which is kind of all you want and need during that time. Right. And and I think there there are so many misconceptions. Like I've talked to people who are like, but five is too young for a child to transition. And I said, ch children who are transitioning, so to speak, at five, they're just mm -hmm. socially transitioning. You know, they're present, right. like you said, it's just a haircut or clothing or changing right. the name they're using at school. And usually those right. children who are socially transitioning so young are very strongly identifying right. in a specific right. gender or they have a strong sense of self, which we don't usually challenge in cisgender children. If a child is Correct. cisgender and they're assigned male at birth and say, I'm a boy when they're three years old, nobody goes, don't you think you're a little too young to right. know if you're a boy? Right. But right. the minute that somebody says, you know, they're assigned male birth and says, I'm a girl, or they're assigned 
you know, female at birth and says, I'm a boy and a girl, like then there is all this questioning, you know, it's, it's yeah. suddenly we no longer understand how gender identity development works on a <laughs> right. psychological level, even though we have had theories for decades and decades that actually, yes, children. Yeah. And, I, and Alex, I would even take that one step further to say, yeah. not only do we not challenge cisgender kids, we actively reinforce Absolutely. their, um, their binary identities. So, you know, when a three-year-old cisgender boy um, is expressing masculinity, it's all we can do to say he's such a boy's boy or she's such a girl's girl and we celebrate it. So we lean into and celebrate and reinforce binary identifications in cisgender kids. And we tolerate non-binary identifications in, in, or presentations or expressions in some kids to some extent, tomboys, mm-hmm. not so much femininity in, 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 uh, in boys, but you know, when we have a kid who very strongly, just like those boys, boys and girls, girls yeah. is clear with everyone in their life. I am a boy or I am a girl, even though that's not what you thought when I was born, we question them. Um, we really question them, but even though if that child had been assigned, you know, congruently in a cisgender way mm-hmm. with their identification, we would celebrate it and reinforce it. Absolutely. And that's has such an impact, not just on trans and gender expansive kids, but on all kids, I think, because also right. th- those cisgender children who do not fall into gender norms, you know, are also hearing this very kind of rigid binary, like what a strong yeah. boy you are. And, and right. that already sets right. the precedence for boys can only be strong. You know, they're supposed to relate to others in a specific way. They're not supposed to feel fear or cry or, you know, and of course, um, it's not always that rigid, but there is a certain rigidity to the binary that really impacts right. all kids in for in sure. harmful way in a lot of ways. But yeah, yeah, thank you for kind of saying not yes, not only do we <laughs> not question them, we yeah. do celebrate them and sometimes in ways that yeah. doesn't even serve them as kids. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm I am all for celebrating kids' gender identities. I just want to celebrate all the kids' gender identities, Absolutely. not just the cisgender binary kids. I want to celebrate all the kids. I just want all kids to feel like they get to be who they know they are and they get to express their identities in all the ways that feel comfortable to them. So. Absolutely. And in ways that are congruent with them, you know, like right. my kid loves to talk about, you know, she always had a strong, like I'm a girl identity as a cis mm-hmm. girl, uh, which also goes to show that having a transparent does not confuse your kid. She was brought up right. around <laughs> all sorts of trans and queer non-binary people. And she's never been confused about her gender or, the, or other people's just to dispel another myth. Um, but also this idea that you have to be a girl in a specific way, right? She loves being a girly girl who's also really into science and yeah. other person, you know, that you don't have to be one thing or the other, right? right? You don't have to be the stereotypes of gender that I think right. we we all end up promoting if we're not careful. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, in my in my work, I think that's the gift that trans and gender diverse kids give all of us is that. Mm-hmm when they're strong enough to be who they are, it allows the rest of us to be the full versions of ourselves because none of us are, you know, all one or all the other, you know, we don't all want to color with the blue crayon all the time or all want to color with the pink crayon all the time. You know, a lot of us just want to explore all the parts of our identity. And so I feel like that's really, you know, in the face of this um, weaponizing of these trans kids bodies, which is so unfortunate and putting them at the center of all this, 
the gift that they're giving us as a society is really allowing all of us to be the truest versions of ourselves, which we all deserve to be. Absolutely. And and I love that there is something that we can give those kids to give them some space if they're experiencing distress when those pubertal changes hit. And um, one of the things that I often hear from parents is this kind of this fear, you know, is this, um, are there going to be side effects that I don't know, you know, about growth? Are there going to be cognitive effects? Are there going to be effects on like bone growth or bone density? I know that some of the concerns I hear about bone density are about cognitive changes. Can you speak to that a little bit to kind of, which is understandable as a parent, you know, I'm I'm also a parent. I'm anxious sometimes if I'm considering a medical treatment for a kid and I want to know, all the side effects, but yeah, absolutely. And when we in medicine say that something is safe, um, we mean it doesn't cause harm, but we don't mean it's without side effect. There is nothing that you can put in your body that is without a side effect, including the caffeine I'm ingesting as we're talking on this call, right? Exactly. I, I, I do that because it's safe, but it's not without side effect, right? So if I have too much of it, I'm going to be jittery and anxious and not feel um, so, so this medications, these medications, these GnRH analogs or puberty blockers, they are not without side effects, though they are safe. And the um, most common sort of side effect that we talk about is relative to bone health. And what we found, so one of the things that we know is that as kids go through puberty and puberty hormones are circulating in their bodies, specifically testosterone and estradiol or estrogen, Um, One of the effects that it has on bones is something that we call bone mineralization or a hardening of the bones. Um, So during puberty is actually when kids should be getting a lot of calcium and vitamin D, whether that's through milk or otherwise, and often they're not, unfortunately, but that's the time when their bones are becoming the strongest. And when we pause puberty, we're pausing the circulation of those hormones, those testosterone and estrogen hormones. And so we're interfering with that bone mineralization process. Um, In the studies that were done on kids who had puberty suppression for early puberty or precocious puberty, what we found was that after six or seven years on these um, blockers, there was noticeable difference in the bone density or hardening or bone mineralization between kids who were on the blockers and kids who were not. A few things about that. Um, One, the good news is that the kids who uh, had those noticeable changes, once the blockers were stopped and their puberty was resumed, when we remeasured them, their bone densities caught up. So it's not, it wasn't a permanent change. It was a temporary change and it caught up. The other good news is that um, the kids who got these medications for precocious puberties would sometimes be on them for six or seven years. It is very rare for a transgender or gender diverse child to be on them that long. So for most kids, I would say we're starting these around 10, 11, 12, sometimes even later, 13, 14, 15. And they're on them for typically two to four years. So less than that time frame where we notice um, changes. That being said, because we know that it's a side effect, we check kids' vitamin D levels and make sure they're getting good calcium and vitamin D while they're on treatment. We monitor their bones while they're on the treatment. So every two years, we check a scan to see how um, healthy and dense their bones are. And and we follow that. Um, And that's really the biggest side effect or risk that we know about. In terms of the cognitive changes, we absolutely know that there are cognitive changes that happen during puberty. There are a lot of them. Um, your frontal cortex develops, your nerve, your nerves in your brain go through this process called pruning or kind of weeding out all the stuff you don't know and solidifying the paths that you really need in your, in your brain. Um, 
the studies that have been done have not shown any cognitive impact of puberty blockers. And again, my reassurance around it when I talk with families is that this, we're not postponing puberty indefinitely. We're yes. pausing it. So these hormones, whether it be the masculinizing or feminizing hormones, will come into this child's body at some point. It may be the ones that were going to be in their body um, from their own ovaries or testicles, or it may be hormones that we give them as we induce the puberty that's congruent with their identity, but they will have these hormones. So I think that these cognitive processes are still happening. I don't think that they're exclusively ruled by testosterone and estrogen. And my um, my confidence from the bone studies anyway, is that I think that this will catch up. The only thing I can really say to families is we don't have any evidence that there are cognitive effects of puberty blockers. It doesn't mean hundred percent that there aren't, but I don't have any evidence that there are. Um, and, and that's really it. I mean, the bones continue to grow. Um, there's another hormone called, uh, IGF one, which is a growth hormone that determines how tall you are. So you continue to grow taller while you're on puberty blockers. You don't have the growth spurt that you would have when estrogen and testosterone come in, but you still continue to grow taller. Um, so, you know, your growth isn't stunted by um, being on these. Um, and, you know, there's some fertility implications of these medications, which is a little bit more complex and, and involves whether you go on gender affirming hormones after or not. Um, but in terms of a bad health outcome initiated by the medication, um, there, there really are none. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a really, that's why we say it's a safe medication. Well, and it's a safe medication, which in my experience can have a life-changing impact on some right. of the children I work with, because there can be such a level of distress um, that really has incredibly negative impact on their mental health, you know, right. that can be really um, prevented to a great degree uh, by using puberty blockers. And I know that as a mental health provider, I have seen, you know, young kids and young people really go from um, experiencing very high levels of anxiety or depression to actually being able to uh, thrive and yeah. um, be almost completely different sometimes overnight just by having this anxiety about their body changing in a way that's distressing to them, kind of being put on pause, like you said. And oh, you know, absolutely. Right. I don't know if you, yeah. I'm sure you've witnessed that too. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I see that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, two, I see, I see two things. I see that the young kids who've identified early, mm -hmm. they know puberty's coming. They're just terrified about it. Um, they've been, you know, living in their, you know, a, the gender that's congruent with their identity for years now and puberty's happening and they're just panicked. Absolutely. So to be able to relieve that panic for them, I mean, I, it, it's just palpable, but then the other kids who are maybe a little bit later to their exploration and they're already have started puberty or they're early in puberty. I've had so many kids tell me just how much better they feel mm -hmm. on the blockers. It just provides them um, a sense of relief that, you know, biology, this, this train of puberty, isn't just hurling down the tracks out of their control. Um, and, and we can say that anecdotally, but the other thing we can say is that we have evidence to really show that puberty blockers do make a difference. There have been several studies that show that mental health outcomes are improved in kids who are offered puberty blockers um, versus those who are not. 
And in fact, there was a study that was done um, that was published in pediatrics in February of 2020 that for the first time really showed in a, in a study of 20,000 plus trans people that there was statistically significant impact on suicidality in kids who are transgender, people who are transgender who were offered puberty blockers versus those who were not. So not only are their mental health markers better in terms of things like depression and anxiety and just overall well-being, but specifically their risk of suicidality is lower on the puberty blockers. Um, and I was reviewing that article right before we talked. And one of the things that I, I must have missed when I read it last year, but it really just shown off the page when I read it today is that what was even more striking to me rereading it is that the transgender adults who wanted puberty blockers, but were not given them or offered them, nine out of 10 of them, 90% of them had suicidal ideation. So it was almost as if we were inducing suicidal ideation by withholding this treatment from those trans folks. And so for me, that's one of the things that with this decision in the UK, the Bell versus Tavistock decision, I just think of how much harm we are actually going to be causing to um, trans kids who we're going to be putting in a situation where they know that there's a treatment available to them. It's, it's one thing to not have a treatment option. Absolutely. It's a whole nother thing to know there's something out there that you could access that would help you and you, and you are being denied access to it. The impact on someone's mental health and the hopelessness that comes with that, that can induce suicidality uh, is really alarming to me. It is. And I think that's the part that should be alarming. And I, I get really sad when I hear um, people saying that's just big rhetoric that trans people are using, right, around suicidality, because actually there is data. This is not rhetoric. Right. It's data. Like you said, 90% of, you know, we now have adults who could have had this access to this treatment, but we're denied it right. for whatever reasons. 90%, you know, and, and that is a vast majority. That's almost everyone. Right. And right. um, when we think about the fact that in the general trans population, we know that in our community, the level of suicidality is 10 times that of the general population, right? And that's not because we're trans, but because we live in a world where our identity and experiences are continuously kind of denied and erased or challenged, as we were saying earlier. Right. 10 times that of the general population is a huge number, you know, and, and knowing that this is one of the treatments that can make an incredible difference in the life of children and young people, that is a safe treatment, and that it's a reversible treatment. Right. You know, there's nothing irreversible that happens with puberty blockers, right? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other point that we sometimes miss talking about when we talk about this is, you know, it's not just that we're relieving kids' anxiety and, and treating the trans yeah. kids and, and gender diverse kids themselves, it's their parents too. Yes. It is not the parents of transgender and gender diverse kids who are advocating for this type of legislation. The people who are advocating for this know nothing, don't aren't involved with, don't have their own trans and gender diverse kids. The parents of trans and gender diverse kids want access to this treatment for their kids. I have kids in my practice. I have parents in my practice. I have one that I just interacted with within the last month who is in the face of the Montana legislation, mm -hmm. seriously considering relocating their family to Canada so that their trans daughter can have access to puberty suppression when she's of age. They want, they know the data, they know the science, they want their kids to have access to this treatment. 
And so we're also really, you know, harming families and, and, and the parents of these kids who know the benefits of this treatment for their trans and gender diverse kids and want them to have access to it. Absolutely. And like you said, puberty is actually not reversible. That's one of the things that sometimes I talk about with parents is, you know, the safe treatment could uh, mean that your child does less uh, or fewer invasive kind of surgical intervention later on. For example, a child who was assigned female at birth might be able to have minimal intervention in terms of chest reconstruction or sometimes even no intervention, you know, compared to something like a double mastectomy, which quite frankly, I went through as a trans and non-binary adult, which is major surgery, Um, you know, and so sometimes for parents kind of also thinking about, what we might be, um, uh, how this might be impacting their kid in the long run, right? Like you said, if they don't want any other medical intervention, puberty blockers stop, everything goes back to how it was. But if they uh, do want more medical interventions, um, it might save also folks who are assigned male birth from uh, really invasive kind of feminization procedure or tracheal shavings or all sorts of much more invasive surgical intervention, which again, not every trans person or non-binary or gender expensive person wants, but some people do need, actually not want, need those to feel congruent in their body. Um, Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the trans masculine kids that I care for, the two biggest things that they experience dysphoria about is their chest and their voice. Yes. And, you know, with with puberty blockers, we are taking away the chest dysphoria. If we started early enough for kids, they will never develop breasts. They will never have the surgery that you you mentioned. And in trans feminine kids, the two biggest things that I hear about from them are also their voice and their facial hair. And we can completely take that away with um, puberty blockers. And, you know, once that voice lowers for trans feminine kids, that's a permanent change. And we, estrogen doesn't raise it. There's no medical intervention we can do to raise that voice. And it is probably one of the most distressing. You use your voice all the time, every day. It is so distressing for trans feminine and particularly, you know, really female binary feminine Mm -hmm. identified folks to have to um, learn how to handle that, that voice. And again, with hair growth, you know, it's not, it doesn't go away with estrogen treatment. Um, You have to have electrolysis or some painful procedure that is recurrent to remove that, that hair and to be able to, um, give sort of our trans kids, the freedom of not having to subject their bodies to those kinds of, um, painful, uh, medical interventions down the road, I think is really a gift. And, and if you talk with trans adults who didn't have the option of puberty blocking treatment, many of them are, very much in favor of offering this treatment for kids because of what they could have avoided um, if they had had access to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I lived in a world where, A, I didn't even realize that trans was a thing, you know, so I just knew that it was really cool that people thought I was a boy on the playground in the 70s, (laughs) right? How cool is that? But if an adult had been like more like, well, you know, how, who are you and how do you feel? And I've been able to express that and have access to this treatment, life would have been so different. Well, I feel like I could talk uh, to you about this like for hours and hours, but I want to be respectful of your time, which I know it's more precious than ever nowadays as a medical provider. Um, Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would really like to communicate to people about puberty blockers and 
specifically or just the treatment of kind of gender expansive yeah. view for anything that we haven't covered that you think it's important to name? Um, you know, I think we covered a lot of it. You know, I really just want people to understand what the medication is that we're talking about when we use it, the fact that it is reversible, um, the fact that we know that it's very safe, that we've studied, studied it in both cisgender and transgender kids for um, several years. I also, you know, just because I work so closely with trans and gender diverse kids, I, I really want to reinforce that um, kids do know who they are. And you know, we all go through a process of identity development that happens our whole lives. I am not the same person at 43 as I was at 33 or 23 or 13 or seven. I have grown and developed over that time. And even for me, there's been some fluidity to my gender identity during that time. Um, but we all get permission to go on that journey. And it's not for us to stop our, you know, children and adolescents from going on that journey, those journeys, particularly um, when they are very convicted about it. And when you have a medical team and a mental health team that is, you know, absolutely convinced that this is the best, best path for a child and parents who are supportive, um, I would really hate to see there be legislation that prevents good outcomes, both physical and mental health outcomes for kids. And, you know, uh, I really just hope that we continue to listen to um, kids and let them continue to change the world uh, and us right along with it, because I think we'll all be better for that in the end. I agree. I mean, the kids I work with know they are, they know what they want. And if we just listen to them, and, and like you said, it's not <clears throat> also no treatment is given on a whim, right? There's like right. x-rays involved and blood work and seeing a medical doctor and often seeing a mental health provider. This is a very involved process. It's not like anybody right. goes in for one and done visit for puberty right. blockers, right? Right. Yeah, this is something that can really make such a positive impact in the life of people and that probably legislators should stay well the hell out of, I would say. Yes, <laughs> it's not their job. Let's just let the right. medical providers do their job, right? <laughs> right. Yes. Well, well, thank you, Alex, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom and this knowledge with the Gender Stories listeners. I also hope, dear listeners, that you go check out Kate's TEDx talk. It's really good, so you should watch it. And um, as ever in the episode description, there'll be some links for you to look at about some of the things that we've been mentioning. And thank you so much again, Dr. Gepford, for being on the show today. Absolutely.